Well, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to that passage that Sam read for us. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. You'll remember that when we looked at these same verses last uh, Sunday, our, our focus was on that unity that Luke describes. Luke, here in verse 32, describes the full number of those who believe as being of one heart and soul. And we consider the implications of that, the, the implications of that unity for some of the tensions that we have been experiencing over the course of the last year regarding masks and mask mandates. But here in the text, obviously, Luke's not thinking about masks. That wasn't an issue for the early church. But rather, the focus here is on money and the implications of our unity, of our oneness for the way that we steward the resources that have been entrusted for us. So our topic this morning is not masks, but, but only the slightly less controversial topic of money. But we need to think about it. It's been said that pastors don't really like to talk about money and, and people don't really like to hear pastors talk about money. But nevertheless, it's important for us to hear what Luke is saying in this text as he describes the beauty of the early church. Because what we do with our money is actually a part of the, the new gospel life to which we have been saved. God has given us resources. He has entrusted us with, with material blessings that we might, in fact, pour out those blessings on others. So let's look here more closely at what Luke says. He, he describes these believers of being uh, of one heart and one soul so that none of them, not, not one of them, said that anything that belonged to him was his own. But instead, that they had everything in common. In fact, some of them even went so far as to sell the, the houses and the lands that they owned, that they might be able to give more generously to the needs of others in the church. And this morning, I want us to, to think about that more deeply. I want us to think about what was actually going on in the church. I want us to, to look at it closely to make sure that we have a clear picture of, of what is actually being described here. And then I want us to think about the implications of that for the fellowship that we enjoy with one another today. How do we embody the same oneness with relation to our material goods today? So let's, let's start by looking more closely at the fellowship or the, the communion of the early church. And, and to do that, I want to first look at its root, and then I want to look at the fruit itself. And so what is the root of this sharing? Well, as we said last Sunday, the, the root is, is stated there in the very first verse, that, that these people, or the full number of those who believed, were of one heart and soul. And as we said last Sunday, that language reflects a, a partnership. It, 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 it reflects an understanding that these people were all devoted to the same purpose. They, they shared the same ambition. They had a, a common goal and therefore they were partners. They were working to achieve the same end and therefore in working to achieve that end they shared what they had with one another. But there's more than just partnership. This is, this is not a, a just a, a cold business partnership where, where there are common interests that, that unite otherwise strangers. 
The language of being of one soul also connotes the idea of, of friendship. Aristotle had, had described friends as, as people in two bodies sharing one soul. And so not only was there a, a partnership, but there was a, a bond of genuine affection. The, the people shared a common goal, but they also shared love for one another. They, they delighted in the good of the other. And that unity of, of heart and soul led to the sharing of resources. Yes, the sharing of resources in the common mission, in the partnership. But also the, the sharing of resources as they just shared life with one another, as they just shared delight with one another, as they, as they responded to the needs that the others had with the resources that were at their disposal. And it was that oneness then that was the root of the fruit that we see here in this passage. But the root of that root, the, the deeper root, is, the, is that, that what the oneness was about was about Jesus. It wasn't just that they were shared to some randomly chosen common end, but together they were believers. They had believed the word of the apostle. They had received the gospel with faith, and they were now devoted to King Jesus and to his kingdom. And because they were devoted to King Jesus and to his kingdom, they devoted themselves and all the resources at their disposal to the, to the purposes of, of his kingdom and to the glory of his name and to the, the good of his people. And it's important for us to see this. It's important for us to see the root of this sharing, the, the root of this fellowship, because we need to understand that what we are seeing here is the spontaneous embodiment of love for God and love for neighbor. This is, the, this is the organic fruit of the gospel. We're not looking at here that something that is compelled. This is not a new law. This is not a new obligation. This is not a new duty that, that we have to fulfill. But rather, what Luke is painting for us is a picture of beauty, of compelling beauty. A beauty that we want to enter into and participate with. When we see the, the wonder of this community, our hearts ought to be stirred. We ought to long to be part of such a fellowship. And we ought to long to play our part in such a fellowship. We sometimes get worried that people will use these verses to, to uh, compel some sort of state-sanctioned or state-forced sharing. That's not what Luke is describing here. This isn't the state at all. This is, this is the church. This is the, the, the community of God's people. This is the fellowship of believers. This is the saints together sharing what has been given to them with others because it is their delight to do so. And so let's look at that sharing a little more closely. Let's, let's look at what is the delight of these early Christians, the, the beauty of the fruit that is on display here. And notice how Luke describes it. He says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And the first thing I want you to notice in that phrase is that littler phrase, belonged to him. There were certain things that belonged to certain people. And that hasn't been abolished. All right? what, what Luke is describing here is not the end of private property. And I say that to, to ease the concerns of some of you who are, who are very anxious to make sure that we maintain our rights of private property. Nothing Luke says here is against that. In fact, the scriptures from beginning to end affirm the right of private property. The, the, the commandment not to steal doesn't make any sense if nobody owns anything. 
All right, so, so private ownership is a reality that, that God recognizes. And it is not being done away with here. There are still, as we see in verse 34, owners of lands and houses. Certain people own those, and, and they have the right to, to use them as they see fit. And many of them are using them to bless the members of the congregation. But that they still held the rights is clear, especially in the next chapter when, when Peter is, is talking to Ananias. We'll, we'll look more closely at the story of Ananias and Sapphira next Sunday. But, but for now, just notice how it is in verse 4 of chapter 5, how it is that Peter speaks to Ananias. Ananias had seen the example of Joseph, who we know uh, more as Barnabas throughout the rest of the story, this, this son of encouragement. And, and Barnabas had owned a field. We don't know if that field was back in Cyprus, his hometown, or whether that was here in Palestine. We don't really know the details. But he had owned a land somewhere, and he had sold a part of that land in order to give the money to the apostles that they might use it for the relief of the poor among them. When Ananias saw that, he was impressed. His, his heart was moved, and, and he wanted in on it, but he didn't want in on it all the way. And so he sold a field, uh, and then he gave part of the money to the disciples, but he lied about it to Peter and to the Holy Spirit, as we'll see next Sunday. But notice what Peter says to him. Peter says, listen, you were not under any compulsion. He asks in verse 4, he says, why it remained unsold? Was it not your own? It was yours to do with what you saw fit. And, and when, even after you sold it, the money was at your disposal. You could have used it as you saw fit. There was no compulsion. And so what we need to see here as we look at this text is that Luke is not doing away with private property. So breathe your sigh of relief. But, but notice that, that while private ownership is maintained, no one said that anything that was his own was exclusively for his own benefit. No one claimed all the benefits of what they owned for themselves, but rather all were interested in and were devoted to the common good of the whole community. Yes, you have been given resources and trusted have been have been uh, uh, resources have been entrusted to your care. But those resources have been entrusted to your care not only for your own delight, but for the delight of others. You have been blessed, as Sam was saying in the children's sermon, you have been blessed to be a blessing. We sort of know this intuitively when we, we think about spiritual gifts. We have, been, we have received spiritual gifts that we might serve the common good of the church. That's, that's actually exactly what the Corinthian church was missing, right? When they thought about spiritual gifts, they weren't interested in the good of the church. They were interested in the, good, the gifts that, that were in their best interest. Whether that meant that those were the gifts that, that brought them the most prestige, or whether that was the, the gift that brought them the, 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 the deepest experience. Whatever it is, they were, they were focused almost entirely on themselves. And Paul said, you have missed the point completely of spiritual gifts. You have not been gifted uh, so that you could be a blessing to yourself. You've been gifted that you might be a blessing to others. You are to use the gifts that you have received, whatever those gifts happen to be. If it's the gift of, of knowledge, or if it's the gift of wisdom, or the gift of teaching, or the gift of generosity, whatever the gift is, you are to use it in the service of the church. You are to use it for the common good. And that is still true in the church today. Each of us has been gifted. We have received something. We, don't, we are not all the same part. We, we don't all play the same role. Not everyone is a hand. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is an ear. 
We have different roles to play. We are differently gifted. But each of us has been gifted that we might serve the common good of the church. But what we need to see today in the, the contemporary church is that is true not only of spiritual gifts, it is true of material gifts as well. You have been blessed materially. You have been given certain resources. Not all of us have been given the same resources. But you have been given resources that you might use them for the good of the church. And that applies to all of you. We're going to see in a moment that, that the rich are able to do certain things that not everyone's able to do. To whom much is given, much is expected. But everyone shared this mindset. Everyone had resources that they could use for the gift. We, we see that in that word, no one. No one said. Everyone shared this view. Everyone believed that what was theirs was theirs for the common good. And so whether you have abundant material resources or, or whether you have few, you have the opportunity to use those resources in a way that brings blessing and delight to your neighbor, that, that relieves their suffering and allows them in, to enter more fully into the joy of Christ's kingdom. Everyone has something to contribute. An author recently wrote a book on the king's economy. And in that book, he said, listen, in the king's economy, it's not so much a soup line as it is a potluck. Everybody brings something and everybody shares. And that's the picture. We bring out of what we have. We bring out of what has been entrusted to us. But everything, everybody brings something to the table that everyone might delight in the feast. But there were some who were rich. There were some who had more. We, we actually see that in the, the little phrase, as many as were owners of lands and houses. We don't always understand the significance of that because in our day, we think of owning lands and houses as, as kind of normal. You know, that, that's, that's you know, what most people do. But that would not have been true in the early church. It's been estimated that, that 85 or 90% of the people alive in the first century, people in the Roman Empire, that these 85 to 90% of people lived at or below subsistence level. They were just every day trying to get their daily bread. It's why a prayer for daily bread resonated so much with people in that day. We don't often think about it. We have pantries full of food. There's, there's a grocery store down the street. But in that day, 85 to 90% of the people were truly working that day to get their daily bread. They didn't have money to, uh, to buy lands and, and houses. They didn't have those kind of capital assets. But there were some who did. And it's those people that Luke is talking about here when he says as many as were owners of lands and houses. He's talking about those who, who had such wealth liquidating those assets so that they could have cash to give away. That they could have money to use for the relief of the poor. I'm not suggesting that, that liquidating those assets wasn't, uh, didn't somehow affect their standard of living. I'm sure that it probably did. It would have had some effect. But the greater impact here would have been on their financial security. That's what lands and houses were for. Lands and houses were, were for your security. 
It's what protected you in the ups and downs of the market. It's what, what protected you when there was a plague or there was a, a famine. Those who were poor, those who had no assets, they suffered far more in those kind of swings than those who had the resources to protect themselves. That's why we, we read about a landowner in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells a parable about a landowner who, who enjoyed a bumper crop. And what did he decide to do with that crop? It was, it was too large to fit in his barns, and so he said, I know what I'll do. I will tear down those barns, and I will build bigger ones. Why? So that I will be secure for years to come. He said, I will, I will have my security in place. I will secure my future so that I can, I can not worry in the ups and downs of the market in the years ahead. The poor didn't have that. The poor didn't have those, those resources. And so you understand the, the landowner's motivation. But Jesus says that is out of accord with the mindset of, of the kingdom and the mindset of the, the king. And then we see exactly the opposite going on here. Rather than hoarding their resources, rather than clinging to what they had, rather than trying to secure their future, they are, they are liquidating their assets. They are liquidating their security. That they might respond now to the present needs of the poor among them. Specifically, the poor within the church. That's, that's, again, what's being talked about here. They are liquidating their assets to respond to the needs of those in the church. That's why they came and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's, that doesn't mean that we should only ever serve those who are in the church. Some, some people go to that extreme. They say, well, we only need to be concerned about the poor in the church. That's, that's not what's going on here. We, we actually know that the early Christians... Uh, had concern beyond the bounds of, of the church. Uh, even Roman emperors noticed this, and they said, we are put to shame by these Galileans who, do, who take better care of our own poor than we do. I'm not saying that we should only be concerned for the, for the poor in the church, but that's what's going on here. What's going on here is that they were responding to the needs in the church so that there was not a needy person among the membership of the early church. That's exactly how the scriptures say we should steward our finances. We have a first priority to our family. Believers are to take care of their families. The family is not a social construct. The family was made by God. It is God who, who made man and woman. It is God who said that a, that a man will leave his family and cling to his wife and they will become one flesh. And that they will become a new family. And there is a responsibility there in the scriptures for us to, to care for our, our families. But, but beyond that, we are to care for our family of faith. We're to care for our brothers and sisters in, in Christ. That, that is to be our next priority. Paul says, you know, do not grow weary of doing good, but do good to all as you have opportunity, especially to the household of faith. And then beyond that, we can move out to those who, who are beyond the church to, to do good. But the, the goal here is to respond to all the needs of those who are in the church. And again, that word need is significant. The, the goal here is, is not just to pile all the money in the middle and then distribute it equally. The goal here is to make sure that no need goes unmet. As any had need, they received. And there was not a needy person among them. And that phrase is significant because... Because that phrase, most commentators see that as, as a fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. 
Back when Moses was, was preparing the people to go into the promised land, he said, he said to them, speaking with God's voice and with God's authority, he said, if you will go into the land and if you will love God with all your heart, and if you will love your neighbor as yourself, if you will do what you have been called to do, then there will be no poor among you. If you will love one another well, if you will devote yourself to God and to his kingdom, then no need will go unmet in God's land. In Emmanuel's land. But throughout most of the history of Israel, that promise was never realized. That vision was, was never embodied until now. Until now, when we see the full number of the elect united together with one heart and one soul, sharing what they have with one another, so that no need went unmet, so that there was not a needy person among them. That's the vision of what's going on here. And it is meant to be for you a, a picture of beauty. We're not, we're, not to, we're not to read this as a burden. We're, we're not to read this as, oh man, that's what we have to do. That's really hard. That, that, that's, that's, that's so heavy. That's such a, such a, a burden. That is not at all the, the idea that Luke has in mind. He is describing a beautiful community. He is describing a, a community that is devoted to one another, that is sharing with one another, where no need goes unmet. And when we see the wonder of that, we ought to want to participate in it. In fact, it is, it is that vision, that, that encapsulating vision, that we ought to pick up as the church today. This vision of no need going unmet among God's people ought to be the vision to which we devote ourselves, the vision that we pursue. This ought to be our goal for the stewarding of the resources that have been entrusted to us. Like the early Christians, we need to recognize that we have been entrusted with wealth for the common good. Yes, it is good and it is, it is right for us to delight in the things that God has given us, to, to give thanks for the, for the blessings that, that flow to us. I want you to hear me say, I am not saying that, that we are to live as simply as possible in order that we might give away as much as possible. That's, that's often taught in the church today, and I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. In fact, I don't even think it's a, a good way for us to actually love our neighbor. We have to understand that we live in, a, in an economy where people use the skills and the gifts that they've been given to, to produce and to, and to build things. And they, and they can only make a living doing that if someone is consuming what they're producing. Consumer is a, is a bad word in many churches today. We need consumers. We, we've seen that clearly throughout this last pandemic. When people stopped consuming, what happened? The producers suffered. People lost their jobs. People lost the ability to pay their rent. They lost the ability to put food on their, their table. Participating in the economy is not a bad thing. We need to understand that. But at the same time, we must be prepared not only to spend, but also to share that which has been entrusted to us. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they are to work with their hands, that they might eat their own bread, that they might consume, and so that they might have something to share with those who are in need. Yes, we are to be uh, participants in the economy, but we are also to be generous givers. 
Generous giving has to be a part of the stewardship of the church. It has to be part of our, uh, the way that we embody a concern for the common good. We must give out of our surplus. We must give out of the resources that have been entrusted to us for the good of others. It's part of what we are called to do. And those of us who have more, just like in the early church, those of us who are rich must be prepared to do even more. If we have more, we can, we can do more. That's not a burden. You see, what we have to understand, we have to have this mind change that, that, that recognizes that we have been created in the, image of a, in the image of a God who delights to give himself away for the blessing of others. That's the God we serve. We heard it in the assurance of pardon this morning. God so loved the world that he gave. God's love expresses itself in generosity. He delights to do it. And if we were created in the image of a generous God, then it only makes sense that we are going to fully enter into the joy that he has prepared for us as we become generous people. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than receive. Do you believe him? It is good to give. It is good to share. It is a delight. It is not a burden. Think of it that think of it. you have been entrusted with resources that you can use to your own delight in coming alongside those who need them. So it's not wrong for you to delight in what you've been given, but part of that delight comes in sharing what you've been given with those who are in need. And if you have never experienced that, if you have never uh, known the, the joy of giving, try it. Put God to the test. See if Jesus knew what he was talking about. Give away that which has been entrusted to you for the good of your neighbor and see if it is, does not bring the joy that is promised in the scriptures. We must learn to be generous people. We must use to learn to use the resources that, that God has entrusted to us for the common good because that is the life that he has called us to. And when we live this way, when we learn to be cheerful, generous givers, the promise still stands. There will not be a needy person among us. That's actually been our goal here at Trinity for as long as I can remember, for as long as I've, I've been here. We, we, have, we have committed ourselves to seeing no need go unmet in this congregation. We, still, we will simply not allow needs to go unmet. We will use the resources we have to, to respond to the needs that we know about in this congregation. Now, if we don't know about your need, we can't respond to it. And so if you have needs, if you have needs, we want to know. Give us the opportunity to be blessed by coming alongside you. That's reality. Now, now, I am so thankful that we have deacons who go beyond that. We, we have a diaconate here at the church who, who not only responds to all of the needs that they know about in this congregation, but they respond to needs in our community. They, they respond to needs through uh, the shelter. They respond to needs through the caring place. They respond to needs through city fields uh, and, and New Hope. They, they respond to needs, and I, I am delighted that they do that. But our first ambition is that there would not be a needy person among us. That no need would go unmet. And you ought to delight to be part of such a fellowship. Because you have a part in that. As you give out of the resources entrusted to you, you are contributing to the needs of the saints and even beyond the walls of this church. 
to those in this town and even to those to the ends of the earth. Because that's really the bottom line. You have been blessed to be a blessing. You have been entrusted with resources that you might come alongside those in need. That you might bless them. That you might share with them life and, and delight. That you might bring them in more fully to the delight of life and the kingdom of God. And that is a blessing. To be given that which you can give away. To be filled to overflowing with God's blessing. That, that, that you might be a conduit of that grace to others. That is part of the good life that we have been called to. And so I call you, look at this passage again. Don't be scared by it. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't be worried about, about how someone might use it for some uh, you know, vague political end. But rather marvel at the beauty of this community. And thank God that you can be part of such a fellowship. Thank God that He has gifted you, both spiritually and materially, that you can participate in such a fellowship, that you can be part of such a, a beautiful community that you have been given, that you might give to others. You've been filled to overflowing, that others might drink deeply of God's grace through you. And that is a blessing. Because God fills us in that way. Because God gives us the opportunity to give. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to, to give. For, forgive us, Father, for, for always wanting to see all the ways this shouldn't be applied. Open our eyes to see the beauty of this fellowship. Open our eyes to see the beauty of this of this community, Father, and open our hearts to long to be full participants in such a fellowship. Father, may we know and may we believe that we have been blessed to be a blessing. And may your blessings flow through us to others to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.